We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass female celebrities who have been torn down by tabloids, dissected by social media, and come out of it all even stronger. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I am a writer, comedian, and filmmaker. And because it's going to come up in the episode, I'll tell you uh, more specifically, right now I am the head writer for The Problem with Jon Stewart, which is coming to Apple TV Plus this fall. Um, Hot plug. I also wrote on the show Girls 5 Eva, which is on Peacock. And listen, another hot plug, but it's a really great show. I think if you like this podcast, you will love Girls 5 Eva. Anyways, this episode is super special because it was a live episode recorded over Zoom and all the money raised went to great causes. And not only do we recap the book, but the author of the book herself joins us on this episode, and that is one lovely Margaret Cho. We recap her book, I'm the One That I Want. It's super fantastic. Then we talk to her. We're going to dive into it all now. So let's throw to the live recording right now. I can get fucking Asian. Like, I, my Korean name is Moran. Moran. That's my name. And my Korean name, it's the name of Kim Jong-il's production company. So that's how Asian that is. Um, I have a, a friend who's even more Asian. Her name is. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, that's pretty. That's really wow. How do you spell that? Is that, is that with like a K or a C? It's just like a sound. It's like, 
okay, so like a cue or like a cue. Just like that. Just call me Jay. Today, we are book clubbing a woman who's truly incredible. She's survived, thrived. She's an icon, Margaret Cho. And we read her very first memoir in 2001. It was published and it is titled, I'm the one that I want. It was a national bestseller. It is so, so funny, poetic and dark. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you know I love dark memoirs. They're my absolute favorite. So let's dive in with our very first guest today, a very good friend of mine, an incredible actress. She is here to discuss the book with us before Margaret Cho herself joins us. But right now, please give it up virtually for my friend, Joy Osmansky. Hello, hi, everybody. Joy. Hello. Hi, Chelsea. Also, well, it- it was so weird alone. talking to myself. So thank you for being here. I'm, I'm so happy to, I'm going to pretend that I'm literally like, you're right there. I'm just going to pretend. Good. Okay. Oh, okay. I like that. We're, yeah, right we're talk- yeah. Yes. We're talking yeah. to each other. Um, okay. So I'm going to give everyone your bio, Joy. Joy is a phenomenal actress. She has been in so many things. I could not list them if I tried. A few are Stargirl, Duncanville, The Good Doctor, Will and Grace, so many more. She was also in a film with Margaret Cho titled The Wedding Palace. And I'm going to say, Joy, most importantly, you're an incredible watercolor artist. And she made a watercolor painting of our dog, Atticus, that brought tears to my eyes. (laughs) That's, that's, That's the credit I'm giving you. That is my favorite. I'm no fool. I was like, this woman is incredible. She's a badass. She's a writer. She's so talented. I want to be her friend. I know the way into people's hearts. It's via their pets. I'm no, I'm no dummy. (laughs) (laughs) You painted my pet. I mean, it's true. I was instantly, it was my first time meeting you and I was like, who are you? I love you. And, um, you're such a ray of light, but I really fell in love with you when we, it was the first time we'd ever met and we had this super deep conversation about, um, the importance of open adoption and open sperm donation for children. And I was like, oh, we will be friends forever. Yeah, no, we didn't waste any time. You know, no, we got right to it. I'm like, let's just get right to it. Yeah. The pandemic has like ruined small. First off, you can't say how are you? So you might as just well be like, what are you in pain about uh, most recently? Exactly. What are your most intimate issues? Let's discuss. What have you been thinking through for a year by yourself in your head? (laughs) What has got you rocking in the corner? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Okay, so Joy, what was your experience of Margaret Cho growing up in the zeitgeist? Well, you know, Margaret for me was the great liberator. And will always be that for me. I mean, when I was a child, there was nothing. There was Kung Fu. You know what? (laughs) There was was Yellow Face. There was Siamese Cats in Lady and the Tramp. Like there was- Oh my God. And there's a reason they- terrible that's the representation. (laughs) Thank you. Exactly. Uh, I mean, there there was nothing. And I had no role models. And because I was growing up in a white household, I didn't even have like- hard-ass immigrant parents coming down on me. Like I had nothing. So when Margaret entered my world, it blew the top off for me. Yeah. Because I was never like a hee hee hee. That was not me. I was someone who was loud. I was obnoxious. I was sarcastic. I was often, I wasn't very nice when I was a teenager. And I can't picture that from you, the nicest woman I know. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've come a little bit further, but yeah. Oh God, I, mean, I love that. My MO as a teenager was to take, to take people down with sarcasm, probably because I was terrified. 
But to see someone like Margaret who had no filters, who was completely and utterly herself, who was rude and like, and celebrated that, that was huge for me because it gave permission to behave in a way that was not typical of an Asian woman. You know, we were supposed to be shy and retiring and teehee and, and, or follow the rules and very by the book or academic. And I, I wasn't those things. So yeah, the great liberator. I I love, I love the title, the great liberator. I feel like that should be a bumper sticker we put on her car. She's like, no, thank you. But we're just like, we're just going to put this on your car. Um, But also, yeah. And I also love the title of her TV show for that reason, All American Girl of like playing against like what you think a woman should be, let alone an Asian American woman. Um, So Let's dive into a couple book highlights that we loved before Margaret comes on. Uh, I will start. So the stand-up comedy bit that you guys saw play at the beginning was this bit about having the name uh, Moron and people being, not Moran, and people calling her Moron at camp. And I loved the book so much. It was so, people say brutally honest. I want to say it was like ravagingly honest. Like the honesty, I was like, oh my God. And one of those, bits was that she talked about being bullied when she was younger and like her whole life was an exercise in not fitting in. And I really related to the bullying thing. She, these girls tricked her to going to camp and then they put like dog shit in her sleeping bag and kicked her out of the camp. I know it was insane. And, um, I also like in, in middle school, like, uh, these girls would smear hamburger all over my locker. Like they'd go to, they'd go to like lunch off site and get hamburger and like smear it all over my locker. And um, a lot of effort. It's not like, I mean, that's a whole plan. Like, that's your whole lunch break. It left campus to go buy a hamburger? I mean, yeah, it's, it's weird. I'll be like, <laughs> so anyways, I really related to this. And um, she said this great thing of like, in some ways, like I, like she sees them and is just like, fuck you guys and never lets the memory go in a way she misses them because the memory was like so poignant in her life. And I could really relate to that of like, yeah, like I, like the, when the internet started, like uh, the first Google search was all my bullies. Like I didn't, I didn't look up like anything. I just like started looking up names. Of course. Of yeah. course. Yeah. You um, want to yeah. stalk them and see how they're doing. Yeah. Yes. And the best part is that calling her moron, like becomes one of her most famous comedy bits and becomes part of her stand-up. And like, I loved throughout the book when people were coming up to her shows to be like, Hey, what's up? And she would just blow past them or be like, I don't know you because m- my pettiness is like, on high. No, I, like, I made a list in the book of those scorned and all the people that she did that to because I found such profound satisfaction in that. Yes, yes. Yeah. It became a goal for me. I was like, ooh, I want that. I think yes. I need to become a stand-up comedian so I can do that and they come to my show. This will be what yes. I devote my life to. So satisfying. So oh, satisfying. God. So good. And also, like, I can't relate to being like, yeah, it was fine. We were young. No, I'd be like, burn in hell forever. Oh, um, okay. What so was a, a, a part that particularly spoke to you? Well, there was one chapter, chapter nine, all of chapter nine. I just kept put a heart around the nine just because I was like, every page I was like, yep, yep. Oh yeah. Like all of it resonated with me. Um, But in particular, that the final line of the chapter, I just was, I think I put the book down and had to go take a walk around. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because the, the final sentence is, I have been a longtime perpetrator of hate crimes against myself, and I am turning myself in. I have had enough. And I think 
you know, that just hit me like a ton of bricks because I think, well, if you're a woman, you already know this. And I think if you're a woman of color, you know this even more because there's so many forces arrayed against you and you start to embody those and put them on yourself in, in a way that is not your job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's not my job to to blame myself for things that are not my responsibility and not my fault. And yet we've all done it. Of course. And, and you become that voice that hates you and, but it's, you've joined them because yes. it's almost like they made you 100%. Like, Oh God, it's so tough. Yeah. And how you start to distinguish between, between your voice and everyone else. And I just, the, the, the many times in this book where she had her like, aha, where I would be like, yes, yes, this is what, <laughs> this is the power, you know, because of course, um, any amount of self-help or any amount of guruing or any amount of anyone else, a therapist telling you these things, eh, depending on where yeah. you are in your life, yeah. you glance right off you, you know, it's just like ping, ping, sure, sure, I know, but you have to make these realizations for yourself. But there were, there were a lot of things in this chapter that uh, describe some of the racism that Margaret experienced, you know, that, that section where she's on Star Search International. And she's like, not, she's an American woman and they put her on, yeah, which is also another great stand-up bit of hers. It's you know great. what I, I love about this is like, just like what you said, of like you can go to therapy, you can listen to, you know, Brene Brown, whatever, but, and not take it in, but then reading a book like this, there's something she wrote about weight that is also oh. like turning yourself in about hate grams. All her stuff on 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 weight and 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 body stuff was so great. She said, um, subconsciously, I was terrified of being thin, so I would sabotage every plan by overeating, then punish myself with exercise, and then get too hungry to control myself around food, and on and on. So one day I just dropped it. Fuck it, game over. I look better today than I ever have. Don't kid yourself into thinking weight issues are not important. It isn't a frivolous thing. That is still a feminist issue. Weight is not just about our bodies. It's how about it's how we feel about ourselves. It affects every decision we make. The status quo would like you to think of it as a petty, unimportant thing, to make fun of it like it is ridiculous, a female obsession, a weakness. This is one of their greatest weapons. Don't become a casualty. The war is almost over and we are going to win. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, please, like, why couldn't I have read this the year it came out and, like, stop torturing myself? It's like the Braveheart battle cry, you know? Yes. 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 <laughs> She's, like, on her horse in front of, like, thousands of women being like, enough is enough! The war is almost over! Yeah. I feel like you're describing a Weight Watchers commercial in 2021. They're like, maybe it's empowering to not do this. Like, we're going to do a, a war cry. Um, no, 100%. It's like, it's a, it's feminist theory. It's an issue. They, they try and make you feel stupid about it, but it is important. Yeah. But also the important part is not about dieting. The important part is like not about letting them put you into this place they put us in our whole lives. Right. Yeah. The important part is remembering where your worth is, not which shake you're going to drink. Yes. Yes. And my worth is in my ass, but like, I understand that it shouldn't be. <laughs> but like to realize it's great. It looks great. It's my, it's my ass and I, I sit on it and it supports me. It's got an important role to play. 100%. And I, I mean, I really related to this in the regard that like I did every diet. Oh. I did all the eating disorders. Me too. Went to, went to all the meetings. I mean, I did everything. And the only 
when it went away was when I quit, I couldn't do it anymore. And I quit and I, I didn't quit thinking it would help. I quit because I was just like, I can't, I can't live like this. Like it's going to kill me. And only then does it leave you, which is horrifying because I did so many, i measured things like it doesn't work. I think, I think also when you are a strong personality and you're highly intelligent, you think I can solve this. So you exhaust every possibility. You're like, well, maybe that just wasn't the one for me. I'll do Atkins. Okay. Maybe Atkins wasn't right for me. It's keto. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, which is so- funny that keto is different than Atkins. I mean, they're both just like a steak for breakfast. Just eat a cube of butter. It's a cube of butter. How? How is that good? I know. And none of it is about like what's in your head and like no. what's in your heart, which is no. like, you know, the harder things to solve and it doesn't sell books as easily. No, exactly. Oh, exactly. It, it doesn't look cute um, in an ad and um, it doesn't have a cute little wrapper around it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And she, she also, oh my God, she had so many great passages in this book. And another thing I loved is that I felt like she, there's a piece of this book that I felt like should become the song lyrics to open this podcast. Oh my God. What is, which one? Okay. It's, it's page 166. She said, I think if we all told our stories and said out loud, what has happened to us? to warn other women, to comfort those who have had the same things happen to them, to show that we are not alone. The world would suddenly become a bigger and better place. I also highlighted that. And I think I, I sobbed out loud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a vocal sob. I was, oh, because it's so true. I, I think a lot about how secretive women are. And um, I mean, my own mother didn't tell us that she had cancer for years Yeah. She chose to suffer in silence because, and I still haven't quite figured this out. I think it came from a place of her wanting to keep it all status quo for everyone else. Like she worried strong or didn't want you to worry all that. So I didn't know until it was stage four and it was way too late. And that was completely, of course, cancer is devastating no matter when you know, but like to suddenly find out and then not be able to help or do anything except palliative. It was just, it was devastating. And and that kind of silence though was so indicative of her generation as well and has really inspired me to try to live much more like this passage says, like tell your story, share your pain. Like you're not alone. You are not alone. And so what's so interesting too, of like your mom having the best intentions and she wants to be strong simultaneously teaches you that to be strong, you should hide and you should not be open about the things you're struggling with, which is not true strength. No, (laughs) Um, not at all. Yeah. I, yeah. I relate to the silence uh, too. My, My mom has always been We've been, uh, we are very judged, especially in past generations for anything that's not status quo. And so she's always been very like, hide, hide our lives. Like everything about us is embarrassing. Don't tell people because they'll they'll judge you, then they'll hurt you. And it's so funny because right before we started this, you were telling me like, oh, I love your mom and, and stuff like that. But it's like, it took us so long and me so long to be like, I'm not going to hide. I'm, I am like, maybe there was like gross parts of our lives, but like, I'm going to be open about it. And like, I think the feeling is that like, it's, it's better that way. It's better for us. It's better for others. Like, and, and also like, 
you think you're going to be so hated, but the person who hates you most is you. Oh my God. It's so true. And I really feel like just watching what my mom went through too, like the, the secrets, they have a physical toll. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like emotion creates bodily reactions. Totally. Totally. Joy, I am so sorry to hear that. And also like, Oh, thank you. What a, what an emotional heft to pass on to your daughter. Yeah, it was a lot. And you know, I, you know, in the course of my life, I've real, I've had three mothers. I had a birth mother. I had a foster mother. I had an adoptive mother. And now I am a mother in three different ways. I'm a birth mother an adoptive mother and a stepmom. And it's, yeah. just, it's just the idea of, of this, uh, is realizing that being team woman is like, is so empowering. And it's a good, good team to and, be on. Yeah. And I think we're taught from an early age, so much competition with each other. I mean, all of the books that you talk about discuss that in some way. Yes. And yes. Um, it's always just incredible how much energy is wasted with women fighting other women. I mean, that, and that place where Margaret talks about um, the Korean reporter. Oh my gosh. Wait, okay. We have to get into that with... Margaret. And I just want to say competition too, for the wrong things. Like like it's never for like the top CEO job. Like in which case I'm like fight to the death, but it's like, it's always for like a dude in high school. Okay. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will speak to Margaret Cho herself. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup how I got my break into Hollywood, when I found out my dad was not my real dad, the time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah, growing up around cults, how I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes, some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much.
Welcome back. Let's dive back in. Let's bring on uh, the, the the icon guest legend of this episode. Um, you know her from literally everything and changing your entire life. Please welcome to the show, Margaret Cho. Yeah. Hi. Hi, thank Margaret. you. Oh, Hi, thank Margaret. you. Hi. That's so amazing. So thank thankful. you. Thank you. Your book is like uh, it, it. I read. I've read hundreds of these. Yours became a favorite instantly. It is just so. Uh, I feel like you handed us your heart. Yeah. So thank you for it. Oh, thank you. That's really that's beautiful. I'm. You know, it's so funny because we always forget about all this kind of stuff. You know, like you put it down and then you put it behind you and this next thing. And so I'm really glad that um, you get to read it. And I, I forgot so many things, you know, like we learn these lessons and then we totally forget them. Yes. Huh. And yes. we have huh. to relearn them over and over. So yeah. uh, I'm grateful. Thank you. I, well, and it's so funny in a, in both a great way for my life and a sad way for society. A lot of the things you talked about in this book, I found incredibly relevant in this moment. And it was written 20 years ago and it was speaking to me now, which was both devastating and wonderful. Um, one of the things we were just talking about is how, when your TV show came out, it got all this bad press and you, uh, there, there was a Korean woman journalist who you got into a thing with and she went out of her way to write this article about you. And I love the story so much for two reasons. One, I would probably sit outside. I'd probably get like a lawn chair and like sit outside their house every morning, just like wave every morning. <laughs> but you became her friend within the book and you talked about how like you both had to overcome this thing of like there could only be one. Right. And that's a major thing. And it's that tokenism where women are pitted against each other. Um, people of color are pitted against each other. And you, you feel like there's not enough. There's a lack mentality. And with her, I feel really sad about it. And she um, she died and we never got to really reconcile. We never really got hmm. to come together in that. And it's really my fault for ignoring a lot of there's like a whole Korean protocol around age and how you really respect your elders. And oh. I didn't have any of that just because I was so rebellious in all of the patriarchal nature of the way that my family was and what, the way that Korean culture was. I just rejected it. And really respecting your elders is really important. And I see it now because mm. so many people show me that respect and how much I appreciate it. And yeah. so I, I really, I really regret a lot of the things that I did towards people who didn't understand me just because they had to fight a, a different fight that um, was uh, one I didn't appreciate. So I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. I really am sad about now. I, I will in the book though, you reach out to her twice with these apologies mm -hmm. though. So mm -hmm. I, it's like, it's so interesting how much your heart was there at the time. And you were, I mean, I got so many messages when I was recapping your book of people who your show is their favorite show, like it's just oh. like beloved. And you had to endure so much. I, I just want to read a part that you wrote, wrote, you said, about the TV show, we were accused of being racist because we did not ring true as an authentic Asian American family when the real racism lies in the expectation of one. Mm. And you were the only show and you shouldered the weight of literally every individual's experience and every white person's idea of what that experience should be in this show. 
And you were right. so young. I know. Well, the demand for authenticity, like we don't demand authenticity from a beloved show like Friends, yeah. which is the most inauthentic portrayal <laughs> of people yes. living in a big city in the 90s. First of all, they're not going to have that kind of apartment working no. at a coffee shop. Yeah, It's like, you know, why do you demand, quote unquote, authenticity from an underrepresented group that you don't require authenticity from? It's almost like we're like some sort of a science project or... Mm veiled anthropology you know there used to be displays of different cultures in hall of man museum things yeah and you would see like the, these like things of like just um documenting their society and that was sort of the same kind of lens we were almost like this social studies anthropological study that's not cool it's comedy and and it's really it shows how racist America is and was, and, mm. you know, things are changing gradually, um, but it's still in a lot of ways, still very backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that too, of like how much the needle has moved since your show. And it's maybe like an, a tiny iota. A Would you guys agree? A tick. Yeah. Yeah. People a ask tick. sometimes yeah. they're like, how has the progress been? I'm like, uh, abysmal what are you what are you looking for me to say but there's a great phrase that the comedian jenny yang coined i think called rep sweats which is <laughs> like that pressure of of a person of color or woman to feel like they whatever they do in media is representative of all yes mm -hmm. yes that's I, impossible um yeah exactly at the time, Margaret, so in the book you wrote, um, first of all, they wrote, they, I, they, I cannot believe they didn't let you write any of this sitcom. Yeah. That's and, crazy. and in all caps, you wrote, I thought they knew what they were doing. I thought everyone knew what they were doing, which reminds me of that Michelle Obama quote of like, once you get to the tables with the smartest people in the world, you realize like no one really knows shit, which mm. she didn't say that yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> it really reminded me of that. And like, yeah. And like, uh, I like it that you didn't write on it, but you wrote, you wrote something. You said, um, this white dude who wrote the pilot, you said, he cranked out a pilot from five minutes of my standup, a sunny expose on what it was like to grow up a rebellious daughter in a conservative Korean household. I spared him the real story. The truth was that I lived in my parents' basement when I was 20 because my father couldn't stand the side of me and therefore banned me from the rest of the house. So that I peeped at the family through the cracks in the door under the stairs, like bad Ronald. I was unemployed and trying to kick a sick crystal meth habit by smoking huge bags of marijuana and watching Nick at night for six hours at a time. Now that's a sitcom. <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> I want to watch that. I would watch that in a heartbeat. So that was my question. I think it would be a good sitcom. Did you ever try and pitch that sitcom? Because if not, I think we should do it. Mm -hmm. I think that would be good. Also, it, it's terrible uh, 80s marijuana, which was like brown and had weird seeds and stems in it and it was uh it would just give you a migraine because it was sprayed with paraquat by oh, the cia it was very <laughs> disgusting pot pot was not what it is now you know it was yeah. not at all the same drug or whatever but um yeah that would so be good funny. okay so yeah. i guess that's the progress we've made better pot <laughs> maybe we have a lot better pot um usually legal uh you know, my dad and I are super good friends. Um, my parents Wait, now true? sometimes live with me. Yeah, they actually, oh. I don't live with them. They live with me. It's a, a very wow. important distinction. Um, yes. And the house just smells like tiger bomb. 
it's so it's so tiger bomb up in here it's like the whole house is like mentholated it's really it's not cool um that's hilarious <laughs> also i love i love hearing that you and your dad are friends because it's like mm. it is possible to come together with a parent even if they do cruel things you will get a lot of emojis i mean <laughs> there's no end to they my parents found cacao talk and i oh. get emojis and um weird videos about about life lessons <laughs> with like an auto-generated like voice it's so annoying but you know it's fine i i i appreciate it and they're just downstairs but they'll still send me a meme sure. or an emoji sure i'm sure from facebook a lot of good memes on facebook so many so many things but it's really you know it's worth it. It's worth our, I, I'm working through that, all of the mean, res, mean resentment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is honestly the real obstacle. Um, so I, another thing I wanted to ask you about, so you wrote this incredible part in your book about how you had this agent named Karen who believed in you, but also because you were like dubious of her, of like, why does she love me so much? And then, um, and then talking about how she brought on a male manager and how it was a genius decision because you would trust the male and how the internalized sexism and realizing like it was within you. Then you fire Karen when she stands up when they ask you to lose weight. And then you and Karen get back together and like get your career. So I was like, this was the rom-com of the book for me. I was like, Karen. <laughs> um, yeah. So how is Karen? Do you guys still work together is my question. No, she actually left to uh, be a, um, a realtor. Oh, and it's a different thing, but, and that the company that, um, so the, and that guy, uh, she hired to be my management also left the industry. Okay, good. His company, everybody died in that whole company. Um, you, like literally died. They were all dead. They're all dead. Um, oh it God. was actually Michael Jackson's management company. So they, <laughs> so <laughs> that, feels, all that feels like a conspiracy theory that's going to launch on the internet. It, it, it's super weird. Um, but I have, uh, you know, I mean, I've survived. I'm still around, which is great. And I mean, I really enjoy, I, I love comedy. I love the idea of coming back to comedy, mm -hmm. um, going out and doing stand-up comedy. I love that there's so many now, like for me, there's a lot of Asian American projects just launching now that yeah. we're going to get to see. So you know, I feel like um, there's such a shift in the way that we're viewing entertainment. We're allowing for Asian Americans to actually be at this table, which is really phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that manager, you also wrote something about him where when your TV show launched, he said, it can fail. We'll just try again. Like, don't worry, you can fail. It'll be fine. And you wrote, he yeah. was so wrong. Yeah. Do you think... <laughs> He truly, he, he truly believed it would be fine. Or do you think he didn't know what a woman and an Asian American woman would go through having a TV show and it not working? Like, <laughs> do you think he was just a jackass? Like, where did that come from? No, I mean, I think that he really did uh, want me to succeed. And I think that he, he was just going from what he knew about repping ma white male comedians. Yeah. You Which know, is like would he fine. knew... Yeah. yeah, he knew that, oh, well, it's fine. You know, it's fine. Like what I've seen, it's fine. And so he was coming from a different world where, well, if, you know, she's going to be here, this is this is how the world is. You just keep getting chances. 
you know, and that's not true because he, but he just didn't, he was like one of those guys that go, I don't see color. It's like, which is such bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not like a special power that some people are bestowed with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joy, have you had similar reps say weird shit to you? I feel like I've been pretty lucky. Um, hopefully some evolution has taken place within that world too. But I but I also, when I first started, was very upfront with my agent. I said, don't send me out for prostitutes or newscasters. <laughs> because at the time, when I first started, it was either me love you long time or Connie Chung. That was it. There was no, there was no in between. You were either hypersexualized or completely asexual. Yeah. Yeah. So I just said, I don't want that. I don't want that. And I was like, I realize this may limit my options, but that's okay right now. I, I just don't want to start out <laughs> on the wrong foot. <laughs> yeah. And to their credit, they listened. They yeah. listened. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I, I feel like there's really great reps and there's really bad reps, but like there has been a lot of progress on that side of it. Yeah. I, I do feel like, uh, uh, unfortunately, some of the worst comments I've gotten have been from other Asian women. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And Margaret, I, I know you know what I'm talking about because, man, there's there's some vicious, vicious strains running through uh, Asian females. Well, it's a lack. Yeah, you're right. It's like that lack mentality. Like there's only so much to go around and you have to take out the quote unquote competition, which isn't right, you know, and, and it's like we have to support each other. And that's the most important part of all of this is that, you know, it's brought, it, I think our community is way more together now than they, than we have been. And we have to sort of like weather the storm of that, but yeah, that's that it's still white supremacy, no matter how it looks, it's still this pitting us against each other is still the effect of racism. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's kind of like, um, in improv or stand-up, how there would be shows where it's like, there's going to be one woman allowed on the show and maybe one person of color and that's it. And so when you see another woman in the wild, you're like, it can't be you because if it's you, it's not me. And that started changing. I mean, I don't know. I still scroll shows where there's like only one. And like, so of course that, and then comes the stereotype that everyone's catty with each other. And it's like, you created this. (laughs) You guys did this. It's not us. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Margaret, you also had some great um, parts in this about internalized racism that you dealt with like uh, on the show and like working with other um, people in the press. So it, do you feel like your relationship with the press evolved after that and now it's something totally different after the, mm. the stuff of the TV show? Oh yeah, it's totally different now because everything ha- has shifted around talking about Asian American issues and talking about entertainment and women and comedy. And so the conversations are totally different and I'm really glad for that. And I think it's, it's really important. Also I've changed and I'm a lot less willing to, um, you know, kind of fight against that, like just my internal oppressor that, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to really, look to where racism exists in me and like get rid of it before I even go anywhere. So I, uh, when I announced this show, um, one of the women in the book club reached out to me. She was so ecstatic that both of you were coming on and she actually made a video. So I want to play it for you guys right now because she, she was, she was so excited and it's really great. Hi, I'm Sarah Gunn. 
Chelsea, thank you so much for hosting Celebrity Book Club. It's meant so much to me over the past several months in quarantine. Thank you also for giving me the opportunity to come on here and tell these two badass Korean-American women how much they mean to me. Joy and Margaret, you have both been so influential in my life and my identity journey as both a Korean adoptee and a Korean-American woman. Joy, you came into my life when I was really searching for my place in the world as an adoptee. You've been such a great role model to me over the years, and I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. Margaret. Holy shit. Margaret fucking Cho. Hi. My brother introduced me to your stand-up in the early 2000s. You were the first Asian woman that I had ever seen unapologetically taking up space. I was actually a little confused because I didn't realize that we were allowed to do that. But you did, and you do, and you've been an endless inspiration to me ever since. Thank you both for making your voices heard and inspiring so many others to do the same. I love you guys. Yeah. That was Sarah. She's I, I love her so much. Um, and Joy, wow. you you know Sarah, right? Sarah and I have only hung out one time, and it was because we did a screening of Wedding Palace, Margaret. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, up in Portland. And so I met her. I went up with the, just for fun to have, you know, meet the people we were screening it for. And, um, um, of course, my heart is always like, adoptee. I, you know, I was like, oh, hello, I recognize you. And, yeah, Sarah's amazing. And we've kept in touch since then. Okay, Margaret, now to ask you about something just as esteemed as that movie. The Bachelorette. You were so great on this season when you were helping everyone. What was it like? Um, like as a strong fem, I'm I'm I would say I'm a blood-curdling feminist and I love The Bachelor. Uh, and I love The Bachelorette. I really do. And so you went on that show, you're also a feminist. What was the experience of going on that show and helping everyone uh write good? Well, it was interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's just so um like a, it's just a, such a very modern phenomenon, these dating shows like that. And, and also roasting, which is another kind of weird mm. phenomenon. And I really was like very, I was scared for them. Cause I'm like, this is like, we were kind of putting your feelings on the line, but it's a very public fashion. So also it was the first shoot I had done um, out of quarantine. And we did this in the summer, oh. last summer. So it was oh, a wow. very weird thing to go into a bubble where everybody was maskless, you know, because you think about like the different ages of the pandemic, this was like right kind of at the height of paranoia where everybody was really isolated. So it was yeah. really strange. I'm much more of a 90 day fiance. Oh, okay. <laughs> Who's your favorite? Um, I really love uh, Zied and Rebecca. <laughs> but I find their uh, connection really uh, just beautiful. I don't know what it is, but I really love them. And I also, I, I think I, I, I like, uh, I just, I like the idea of this, the cultural mashup. I'm also super obsessed with Caesar Mack and, and all of the women from the Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joy, I don't know if you watch 90 Day Fiance. I don't, but I want to. Caesar's yeah. a nail technician who has sent all of his money to um, a woman in Ukraine for 10 years and lives off of coupons. Oh, my God. It's a great show. It's so oh my God. nuts. It's so, and I feel he gets like, but he keeps on getting back up. And I'm like, why? Mm. You know, hope lives so strongly in Caesar. And I'm like, you know, maybe that's really what love is, is the hope that 
survives in you, you know, <laughs> like maybe he is got the answer to it all because, you know, we can be in partnership and be really unhappy in real life, but he's like eternally happy and joyful and being, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm obsessed with Margaret. This is how I know we've been in the pandemic so long because we're looking at Caesar as someone who's doing it right. And like that cannot <laughs> be the case. I really, I do want to go and get a pedicure from him and get, and ask him a lot of questions. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'll come on that. I'll come on that. But I, I, I'll yeah. roll up there with you. Um, But back. Okay. One thing you say is hope and resilience. After you wrote this book, you wrote another book of like, I've decided to stay and fight. So was the process of writing the book something that like fell in your lap? Like, did you start writing and it became the show? Was the show such a success that you started writing the book? Like, what was that journey? It was kind of, they were all sort of happening at the same time. So I'd done a one woman show in New York called I'm the one that I want. And then um, I was, uh, so that the book was, born out of being in New York and meeting with uh, book places and, you know, I had a literary agents and stuff. Mm. And then the second book was really coming about because I was a uh, part of this growing descent around um, the Iraq war and around uh, the Bush administration and the, the way that the country was starting to really divide um, because wow. before, you know, during, if you think about before Obama, how, um, incredibly like even before the Bush administration, how incredibly like with the Clintons, we were good. Like America was actually very solidly. We were behind each other. I mean, the idea of like partisan voting was really like, maybe we don't need two parties. Like there was a real sense of unity, which is hard to even imagine now. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard to even imagine now. No. Yeah. But back then it was really, um, it, it, it was a different, really different time. And so uh, uh, writing around um, the Bush administration, the frustration around that, the, the really like difficult time of absorbing how the nation was dividing was really um, important. And it was, it was also, you know, after 9-11, it was also after we're just watching what was going on with people really getting their news from comedians like John Stewart. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was a really important event to sort of like look at the way that we viewed news, comedy news, how the daily show really sort of represented. And I look at, when I look at the daily show, I would really, really think of Liz Winstead actually. Mm. Um, and I look at her way of looking at how comedians really tell the truth and that's why we're always going. It, comedians became a mainstay and it really happened after 9-11. That is such wow. a fascinating historical look at that. And, and now hearing you saying, I'm like, oh, that's totally right. But yeah. I wouldn't have thought of that. So now with us obviously being incredibly divided, has it changed the way you do comedy or write jokes or like when you go to and do a live show? Like, has it changed what you do? I think it's just made me much more real made me realize much more how important it is to uh look within for racism sexism homophobia to really try to get it out of your uh, own being before you present art and i, I think yeah. that it's, it's really it, it, i i mean i know that it exists within me and i'm always trying to get rid of it um also like just 
on the other side of it, I'm like, they're really in a bubble. Like they're really losing it. You know, when they're, they're justifying their anger towards progressives because they think that we're um, eating babies. What? It's so far it's, fetched. It's so it's so far fetched. I, 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 and that's the thing. It's like be be mad that we're buying seven dollar juices. Like that's a legitimate claim. Yeah. But babies is too far. It's so far. But then also the same by the same mindset that they're like blaming Asian Americans for the coronavirus. That mm. that that there's like a lot of things that that line up. That this is like they're like holding on to their guns when everybody's killing each other every day. You know, it's like they're not categorizing when lots of Asians are getting killed that it's not a hate crime. There's so many things that are a problem. So there's a lot to talk about. As a comedian, I think that I'm looking forward to going back and doing live shows because there's so much to say. God, yeah. You yeah, do you think you will um like if you tour like that you will What am I trying to say? Like when I think about comedy now, it's this weird line of just doing what I say and think and feel because it's what I feel and a line of, well, what will bring people who don't think like me over to my Mm. side or or our side or, you know, what will make people less homophobic, less racist, less sexist, which is a different type of joke telling. Do, Do you feel any of that? I think it's really about humanizing experience, humanizing the experience to the point where you can't help but be um convinced of the humanity of the subject whatever that is like one of the um shooting victims of the atlanta shooting were um she was this 71 year old korean woman and she had a hot husband who was 35 that she leaves behind and he was hot and then was like i was like wait what like she was gangster like damn like this was so tight at 71 And then so I'm like writing these jokes about how, you know, I'm 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 pouring a 40 of Astroglide into the ground to honor my dead homie. Like that's <laughs> to me, that's just amazing. So, you know, it's like, how can you not like no matter what <laughs> arena of politics you come from, you have to recognize that she's fucking amazing. So to yeah. put out to to extinguish a life that was just so dynamic. Yeah. It, it's you know God. people have to understand the injustice of that like yeah like, i'm like bitch yeah. <laughs> god you're already talking about that i can't wait to go to your show i guess in yes. my mask will you do a show if everyone's in a mask and you can't see them laughing will you say yes or just yeah. be like i'm out of yeah. course no i would love to I, I would love to do that i mean i think that would be great i i i'm just i want everybody to be safe and definitely that all of that is really important to me. I don't care. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't care if they have masks. I mean, it, it's great. Whatever it is, whatever yeah. form it takes. I've been doing shows outside in like um, parking lots with uh, people in their cars that's, and that's wow. been great. So, cool. you know, the more that I can do the better, but I, I'm looking forward to actually getting back out and touring and doing comedy. Did you do any zoom stand up shows? Yeah. I just love the idea of being able to say it, even though I can't see or hear what's happening. I know it's good. Like I'm just, I'm satisfied with what's happening. So it's weird how like little validation I need in my old age. (laughs) Like I don't really, like I'm just like so able to just know like, oh, I know this is great. So it's going to be great. It's, 
it's weird, but it's uh, there's a talent to it. And I think that some people are really getting very, very good at the art of doing comedy without any kind of like reaction, you know, that or not any like discernible. But you know, kind of in the ether, like you kind of know. So I think it's That's true. I think it's a specific talent, but I'm I'm really enjoying it. Oh, That's I I wish you could bottle the not needing validation and sell it as merch on your next tour. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but no, you're right. It's, it's, a, it's a hard road. It's a hard road to get there. But then you realize, like, when you can make your own opinion more important than anybody else's, that's kind of like a crazy superpower. Yeah, that is so cool. And also what I love about you hearing about your excitement to like get back out there and tell jokes is that in this book, you describe the hell of touring. Um, and I also toured up with improv, which is so dorky, but I did, we did a van. We would go to hotels that had like blood on the sheets, you know, and perform your show. And you wrote <laughs> very similar stories, just fucking nightmares on the road. But it's, at the end, like the love of comedy, you're like, well, the hotel wasn't that bad. And you're going to like get back out there. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's all just part of the, the, the grittiness and the difficulty of being an artist, you know, it's just one of the things that we accept. And, uh, yeah, I have tremendous ex- a respect for improv artists. It's like, you have to create castles out of nothing. It's really profound, um, uh, so thank you. That's been the only kind cool thing I've heard about <laughs> improv in a long time. So I appreciate that. It's hard. It's really, it it's like hard. the artistry is, is co- tremendous. It's really, it's really difficult. Thank you. I mean, that's how I feel about stand up. So, um, thank you. So we have some questions. Okay. okay. Um, Margaret, any plans to write another book? You've written many, mm-hmm. any plans to write another um, I would love to. I I was uh, I just um, was part of a uh, very big book that's about leaving San Francisco. That um, so it's just a book of essays that I, I just wrote in, and I kind of forgotten the the joy of writing. I mean, I write every day, but it's stand up comedy, so it's a very different format. But yeah, for sure, I would love to. I would love that as well. Yeah, so that would be great. Um, yes. And the yeah. chat box would also love it. So yes. in staying on the book, is there anything you would revisit or reassess from your first memoir? Mm. And tagging onto that, I will say one thing I forgot to bring up is that you included one sentence of how you and Quentin Tarantino were dating during this time, but yes. you didn't go into it. It was just one quick blip. And I was like, like, Margaret, draw- I need a chapter. Yeah, my mind, I was like, wait, what? I like read it three times. Yeah. yeah, he's great. I mean, he's so the same, exactly the same. Like he's just never changed like to me now he's the same guy that worked at the video store That's so in funny. Hermosa Beach like he's like totally the same it's so weird how little fame and renown and the world at his feet how little it's changed him wow. <laughs> he's exactly the cool. same Wow. That's right. That's Person. that thing of like your opinion ma- matters most. Yeah. yeah. And he's really that like his opinion has always mattered most and he's known the most, which is really powerful. And so I, I really respect him. Um, but he won't carry himself like he doesn't have a smartphone. So, you know, I don't know how he gets anywhere. Just, <laughs> I'm like, you don't have any GPS. You just go. Like, he's just like, yeah, I guess, I don't know if he has a Tom's Guide or like a map or something. A he just get, but he's always late. That's one of the reasons why oh, he's always late. Yeah, well, um, 
but yeah, he's a cool dude. Cool. Okay. Joy question for you. Um, what was it like being on Grey's Anatomy and would you return? Um, I was fired from Grey's Anatomy, so I will not be returning. (laughs) Why? Can you stay on the podcast or will that be like too much dish? No, I could, I could say, uh, so improv, a friend of mine was also on the show as an intern and he was part of the Acme improv group and he was work, uh, studying as a writer. And so he was like, Hey, you want to come host an Acme show? And I was like, that scares the shit out of me. So I guess I should probably do that. And we did it. And ahead of time, we filmed um, a Grey's Anatomy, like a little spoof video. We both, let me make it very clear. We loved being on the show. It was one of my favorite shows. When I got to be on it, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I've made it, I've made it. It didn't matter how many lines I had, but we did a little video with love in our hearts about Grey's Anatomy. Someone saw it, got upset, and we were summarily fired. <laughs> Oh my God, Joy. That is such a great story from like, are you going back on Grey's Anatomy? You're like, yeah, I made a spoof video. They fired me. No, I, I think our, I, I was told by someone who knows that our headshots were put up on the wall with the words, do not hire under it. I mean, I think what's funny about that is that there was a chance they would have forgotten your faces and rehired you for different characters. It's entirely possible because that show has lasted for so long, but no, I believe me, right after that happened, I was like, well, I guess I'll never work again. I guess that was it for me. That's yeah. That was amazing. Um, okay, <laughs> Margaret, I have a really insider question that definitely comes from the book. Um, how do you distinguish between a Karen and a Marcel as far as both of them seeming supportive at the beginning of your relationship? Mm. I think it's like... Um, it. It's, it's like this idea of like wanting to buy into, um, like with Marcel, it's like this wanting to buy into like all of the things that we're always looking for the one, you know, when you're like, you have to be partnered, you have to be married and your life isn't complete unless you have the one. And, Mm -hmm. and really now I realize after a lifetime of unsuccessful marriages, I'm really happy that I am the one like the one was actually just being with myself and I'm super, I'm the one that I want. Yeah, Is that what I saying? am the one. Well, I have this one too. Oh. The, all I needed was this one. Oh God. Okay. And they've so, been in the, your lap the whole time. Yeah. She's, she's incredible. She loves oh, to listen to me. mommy talking about herself. <laughs> oh good daughter. Very good daughter. Yes. Yes. She's very good. So it's like both of them are the same. It's like, well, you know, as artists, we often believe that that validation is going to come from outside, whether it's an agent or manager telling you you're good enough or whether it's a partner telling you you're good enough. But really, we've got to tell ourselves and believe ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is mm-hmm. uh, that is so beautiful. OK, very last question for both of you. Do either of you have any tips for dealing with loneliness during the pandemic? Yeah, we're ending on a downer, but this is a downer podcast, okay? Like, we get dark, we get into the shit, we're going to give yeah. some advice and sign off. <laughs> um, well, I I think that it's really about, I mean, you know, we have so many ways to connect, you know, through this kind of a platform, through social media. There, There's really, like, it's a kind of um, existential loneliness that I think 
comes into play. But when I feel like that, I get really into Czech new wave films. And I like mm. to watch a lot of black and white movies. Pre-code Hollywood. I would say <laughs> watch any kind of Mae West or oh, yes. kind of, you know, screwball yeah. comedy that you can find. Or, you know, just like know that we have a hundred years of cinema to, to look back on and enjoy. And, you know, those those are just as good of friends as people that you might meet on, on Tinder. <laughs> I think it's that actually is. safer and better. I mean, you can meet all those people too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, um, I think the idea of partnership and the ideas of what we're supposed to live like that really create loneliness. And if you can really just enjoy, um, all the things that have happened so far that we can enjoy online on, on, on TV, I think it's really great. I love that. I, I love that. I think like just not don't assume that someone else isn't lonely too. Do you know what I mean? I know. Yeah, that's right. Right. Like, and hey, I've gotten lonely and I have two small children. <laughs> like it, it's it's true, Margaret. Like it is an existential loneliness. You can feel very isolated even if you're surrounded by people. And anyone who's ever lived in New York knows that that's true. Yes, very yeah. true. But um, but yeah, to, to not assume that everyone else is just feeling okay. Everyone else must be fine. It's just me. No, I'm pretty sure lots of other people are feeling the same way. So to, you know, to reach out and, and seek, seek communication in any way. Like you said, Margaret, like I found a lot of joy in Instagram. Yeah. Found, yeah. I mean, you know, me too. Oh you my God, guessed. me too. Um, yeah. 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 I think my advice would be, um, look up statistics of divorce rates when pandemic <laughs> ended in other countries. It's really high. Um, so just remember <laughs> that like, sometimes loneliness is phenomenal. And, um, I will also say foster and adopt a dog. My uh, dog, like as if it heard Margaret's dog has come over between my knees and it's now like pet me, please. Yes. That's pretty nice. Um, and Margaret suggested books, uh, suggested movies. I'm going to suggest books. Mm. Books for my friends growing up. Mm. Books had lessons out of everything. And so pick, pick up an old fashioned book. Um, Margaret, thank you so much for coming on, for sharing yourself with us, and also just, just for writing this, to have it out there forever. Mm. What an incredible thank book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy thank you. It's a manual. Thank you so much. It's a manual. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank um, you thank so you to much. everyone who came in tonight and bought tickets. All the money is going towards amazing places. So we really appreciate you. And um, we will see you and your gorgeous dog on Twitter and Instagram. So go follow these two lovely ladies. And thank you everyone for listening to this live episode of Celebrity Book Club. And that's the show. That is all for this week's episode. I want to thank Joy Osmansky. Not only is her insight so incredible and she's so lovely, but for sharing that Grey's Anatomy story. It can be weird to share the crazy shit that can happen in Hollywood, but it's so important when you do and to realize that something like that can happen and it's totally fine and Joy has an incredible career. And I just wanted to thank her for that story. I think it's super special that she shared it as well as everything else she shared. And I want to thank Margaret Cho, so it was just such an incredible conversation. I love talking to them. Hopefully we will do another live episode in the future and raise a bunch of money for some good causes. I want to thank our episode producers, executive producer Daisy Rosario, associate producer Kren Wallace, and producer Brandon Nix, and our episode engineer Marcus Hong. 
And I also want to thank House Seeds Live. They are the organization that contacted us to do a live episode. During the pandemic, they raised $1 million for charities by doing live episodes like these. So hopefully we will do another one. And I want to thank Ben Blacker specifically who reached out to me. Such a great dude. And he has his own podcast, uh, Dead Pilot Society, where they read pilots that did not get picked up by networks. And they have um, celebrity actors read them. And it's a whole podcast. It's great. So go check them out and check out House Seeds Live and participate in their events that all raise money for charity. That's all for this week's episode. And I will see you guys next week.